0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies, welcome back to another episode of T for C. If you're interested in design, especially human-centered design, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is the vice president of human-centered design and development at B-Swift, a software as a service company in the healthcare space. But before I introduce you to Justin Dower, I want to make sure you've signed up to get a free copy of the Just Brew It ebook. It has amazing career advice from some of the incredible professionals who've been guests on T4C, including NPR journalist and the host of How I Built This, the podcast, Guy Roz, and Dr. Janet Yellen, who's the former chairwoman and the first chairwoman of the Federal Reserve Bank. And it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and you'll see a sign-up box right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Justin Dower, a multi-faceted, multi-pierced, multi-tattooed designer, author, and speaker. He's also the vice president of human centered design and development at B Swift, which is a software as a service company in the healthcare space. Justin has immersed himself in the tangible and digital media over the past 20 years and he's been a creative director managing front end developers, UX architects and visual designers as well as having designed web app UI also known As a user experience for online supply chain management applications. Justin is also the author of two books. His latest is entitled Creative Culture, Human-Centered Interaction, Design, and Inspiration, and it's due out in June 2020. Justin, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to
1: go? Hey, Andrea. Great. I'm glad to be here. I am absolutely caffeinated. I'm on cup number three. It's down in the belly. I am ready to go.
0: <laughs> I got to tell you, Justin, I have read a lot of books over the years and a lot of the acknowledgement sections of those books that authors write thanking the various people who've helped them and getting their book across the finish line. But I have never read acknowledgements thinking coffee shops (laughs) the
1: way yours does, and you think five of them. Oh my gosh, do I? Wow. The energy and space of writing within a coffee shop, you know, I write about in this book, just enough noise is a concept. And it's so true. There's just like a level of white noise that helps support writing, at least for me. And boy, yeah, five coffee shops. I'm not surprised it's more than that, but uh, it makes sense. Absolutely. Well, I love the fact, of course, that coffee figures
0: prominently in your book and it does. It comes up on numerous occasions, creative culture, human-centered interaction, design, and inspiration. But what I love even more, Justin, is your focus in this book on the importance of
1: people in the workplace.
0: In essence, human-centered design.
1: What a concept. Yeah, it seems like one of those things that should be a layup for businesses, putting people first. But unfortunately, that's not often the case. It'll make for some really inspiring dialogue today because there's there's a lot of meat in the bone for that topic. In your book, you write, and
0: I'm going to quote here, as someone who's long worked with and supported designers and front-end developers in both design and tech-focused engagements, I've consistently seen how unhealthy internal cultures are tantamount to psychological abuse, how these environments have caused brilliant people to disengage from their crafts and question why they pursued their paths in the first place. I've seen how they've impacted my passions, my work, and my ability to thrive, and I decided to do something about it. What was it that you experienced, Justin? Can you give us a couple of examples of the unhealthy internal cultures that you've worked in over the years?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that could be a week long podcast, but it was several positions worth and I'm not one to, uh, you know, leave a position after one or two years. So we're talking several positions. We're almost talking 10 years at that point consistently of unhealthy cultures. And that effectively means rather than a person being viewed as an individual or someone who is bringing a passion to a role based on their life experience or someone who is just unique and who they are rather viewing someone as a name on a spreadsheet, a resource, if you will. And to that end, say you have to pick up your son or your daughter and you have to leave work at four o'clock in a given day. And this seems like the simplest thing. And this literally happened to me, walking out the door and someone kind of tapping their watch and being like half day today and everyone chuckling around you, which to me, okay, it seems like a joke, but someone's watching you leave. Someone's noting that you're leaving and making a point to everyone around you that you're leaving and that you don't have enough work to do. Or if you dare to pause, in a given day and just want to diffuse and look at anything from CNN to a comic book website or read something about a movie coming out and having your supervisor come over and say, again, not enough work to do? That happened more than once. You know, these passive aggressive little digs are what we call death by a thousand paper cuts at that point because they kind of build up. But they're also, you know, being thrown under the bus by a supervisor on a call or not being supported or or taking the blame for something or being admonished in a presentation because you didn't say something you were supposed to rather than making it a a learning experience. Those are all little offhanded things that I said just now that sound like bullet points that I, I made up. But every single one of those things happened to me more than once. So I decided to do something about it by flat out leaving the last unhealthy culture I was in with nothing lined up. I consulted my wife first, you know, is this something we're prepared to do? And she said she would support me 100%. So I just straight up quit one day, had nothing lined up, did some soul searching over the next few months, wrote an article for a a site called The List Apart that people in the design field will know. It's one of the more popular design development websites out there about unhealthy agency culture. It was called Resetting Agency Culture. And that kind of kicked off the whole sequence of events to where we are today. So it was as a
0: result of that article that you found the better culture that you wanted to
1: work in? So it was a little column A, a little column B. I found the culture that I wanted to work within. And funnily enough, it was a Swedish company that was establishing a foothold within the States. They settled in Chicago and they wanted to build up a design practice from scratch. And maybe this is something I have to see my therapist more about, but I cannot take on a role that is like a layup for me. It cannot be something that's like, here's your team. Just start throwing doubt. I need something that's a project, something to be built from scratch. And this Swedish firm called Nansen needed to start a creative team from scratch. And taking on that role and then ultimately absorbing this level of Swedish egalitarianism where everyone is viewed with respect equally, you know, that's kind of a trite thing to say in this industry, that they have a seat at the table, meaning your voice is heard in meetings and things pertaining to design. But that is just the way the Swedes operate in totality, culturally and business. And that validated to me that it's okay to operate like this. It is okay to be respected to the point of like psychological abuse, having worked in abusive cultures at that point, I just thought that was the norm. I didn't know any better. I didn't know there was something outside of that. So the Swedish culture in that firm validated to me that it is okay to operate in this sense. And having come from the agency world and all the kind of negative things that can happen in that space with people being viewed as resources, that is where the article came from at that point. And it ultimately led to a couple books. So how
0: did you get this job or did you create this job and this title at B-Swift, the vice president of human-centered design and development? Because you are the first person that I've ever interviewed with that
1: title. (laughs) It's pretty niche. And that's a phenomenal question. Nansen was an agency as well that I just mentioned, a Swedish agency. And this is just something, I mean, agencies are fantastic places to work for those that do it right. But for me personally, my sense of fulfillment from doing cool websites wasn't scratching the edge for me. I want to do something that was good for people. I want to do design that was make an impact for people. I was working with human-centered design, and we'll talk more about that at Nansen, but it was applied to agency kind of websites. I want to do it in a space that needed help at healthcare in the States absolutely is a challenging space to work within with the convoluted plans and HSAs and FSAs and PPOs and all these wonderful acronyms. There's a lot of good work to be done there for people under duress or people who need healthcare. So uh, at B-Swift, the position I assumed was a VP of UX role, but I saw what we could do is bigger than that. So I ultimately met with the stakeholders of the business and sold them on the business value and impact of human-centered design, designing for people and how that impacts our differentiation in the space and the quality of the work we do. So you have to... Frame it as not just it's a feel good thing, but it also helps the business. So the way we design and develop, which is development, both roll up under me under human centered design, because in both senses, we have to do what's right for people and consider people first. Right, because usually we hear about
0: human centered design focusing on the end user of a product or
1: a service. So what do you do in this role? So I lead a team of diverse designers, researchers, and developers. So we are a shared service, which is to say we aren't aligned toward any given products. We kind of float amongst them and get to create amongst them, which is tremendously exciting. So I advocate for, I drive the direction of design at the most senior level. And that is uh, client presentations, sales presentations, running workshops, speaking at our events, effectively being the face of human-centered design for our business, and then articulating why the way we work is a differentiator in our healthcare space, speaking to the value of design. So it's a lot of words there, but it's ultimately making sure that our team is supported, our team is doing good work People are staying busy and not too busy. People have a healthy work-life balance. Obviously, culture is something that is paramount to me. And I write a lot about, and this is, again, not just words on a page. It's something that is my passion. The way we create and the way we treat each other are absolutely synonymous and have many intrinsic touch points. So that kind of encompasses my role And any given day is a mix of all of those things. You've already given us some examples of what
0: a really shitty culture is like. Yeah. What does... A human-centered design approach in the workplace look like, and what does it feel like? You just mentioned culture, and right. and it goes way beyond like the layout of the office. This is so much more.
1: Yeah, I, I was on uh, another podcast with a fellow from Ireland, and uh, you know, I read about a concept in my book about this feeling in the pit of your stomach on a Sunday where you dread going into work, and he called it the Sunday dreadies. And I I love the way he put that. And I mean, that's so applicable if you are in a role – where you dread going into work because you think about the previous week and how you were thrown under the bus or how, like I said, you tried to leave early and someone tapped their watch and threw a little dig at you? Those are all signs of an unhealthy culture. You don't want to go into work. You'd rather stay home under the covers. You can't fall asleep because you're playing this horrific film reel inside your head of what happened last week. A healthy culture is people first, and I say human centered, and that means different things to different people in the way we create. But ultimately, it boils down to people first and in the way we design, and the way we treat one another. And we treat one another with respect as individuals. So that means looking out for your fellow man at that point. It means being respectful, particularly at this time when we're working from home amongst coronavirus. And on any given day, someone's productivity might hit 70% if they're lucky, but you have to be cognizant of people are just trying to stay sane right now and survive and try and get toilet paper and all these valuable core life things that people are dealing with with kids at home that's my case as well Is an explicit example, I tell my team, I recognize this. I know you're going through a lot right now. I recognize your productivity is going to be lower. I understand what you're going through. And then in actions, I don't just make it lip service. I go to the respective product managers that my team are interacting with, and I set their expectations. I say my team's working a little slower right now. We have to adjust the milestones, or that's all part of being a leader, advocating for them, making sure there's support there. So under these very specific and different circumstances working with now, it's things like that. It's making sure people are growing in their field, people aren't stagnating, people understand what their career path is, and how I can help them get there, advocating for them on any given day. Like I said, in a presentation, if things don't go so well, making a learning experience, not taking someone into an office with my expensive Herman Miller chair and, and admonishing them, which has happened to me, but making it a learning experience. What could we have done differently next time? Or how can we try this or try that? Being an advocate for my team, both in a design sense and a cultural sense, making sure that a healthy culture is not defined by a ping pong table, and arcade machine, that's more defined by respect and humility and empathy at the most senior levels. Those are all core signs of a healthy creative culture. So you mentioned the
0: ping pong table because in your book, you also advise job seekers to watch out for certain kinds of perks, what you call cultural
1: mandates. Why is that, <laughs> right. Justin? It's important to make sure that a business, when they might tout their culture, because a lot of businesses recognize culture and brand are synonymous. If you have a healthy culture that organically will fuel your brand and the organic marketing in the job space as well. Oh, this this company has a really cool culture. Maybe I'll check that out. And you think about things like some software firms on the West Coast have things like sleep pods where you can take a nap at work and you can conk out like a sensory deprivation orb or the business will pay for my dry cleaning. If I'm at work too long, they'll pay for my dry cleaning. If I'm there past nine o'clock, they'll pay for my cab home. On the surface, those things sound great, but you have to think about the other side of that. Why am I working past nine o'clock? Why do I need to be taking a nap at work? Why am I working so long? Why do I have to do my dry cleaning? And those are kind of, I'm not saying it's across the board with malintents, but I think often... It yields, like I say, Band-Aids to cover up what the cracks in the culture are by throwing technology or things that look nice on the surface level. So if they have those things, that's great, but there has to be a baseline of humility and treating people well across the board, not just with ping pong tables or an arcade machine, but just how people's time is valued and how their expectations are set and how they're communicated to. Those are all the signs of a healthy culture far more than any tangible perk like that.
0: Justin, do you think that in this current economic environment right now where there are now tens of millions of Americans who are out of work, is a human-centered workplace something that might seem a little too good to be expected, a luxury and not the rule, especially for those young people who are
1: in the job market trying to get that entry-level role? I don't think so. I genuinely don't think so. I I believe there are always companies out there who are going to do it right. And they do that not just because it's a feel-good thing or it's the right thing to do, but because it does help the way they work and it does help their bottom line. They know not to have over-meeting syndrome, which is very easy right now with everyone being remote because I can't see you, I have to check in with you 45 times a day, or we have to make sure there's a meeting on your calendar constantly so I can check in with your work. Businesses who do it right and understand that a healthy culture, a human-centered culture, respect that their teams can get things done with minimal check-ins. Is a meeting absolutely imperative to happen? Okay, then we can check in, but we're not going to stock your calendar because I can't see you outside of my office. Or understanding that people are not going to be at their laptops from nine to five every day, people have to get out and stretch their legs or people need to take a nap just to diffuse. I believe those businesses are always going to be out there. And you know, just like it was for me, I had to pause. I'm not saying do something so dramatic as quit a role if you're in it or what have you with being in a job seeker position, but just take your time to find the right fit because those positions are absolutely out there and are going to be even in more demand moving forward right now, given everything we're going through.
0: What advice do you have for college students who are graduating now, who will be starting off their professional lives in coming weeks, in terms of how to figure out if a company's culture is going to be human-centered or not?
1: You know, it can start as simple as just looking at a company's website and seeing where does culture fall in their navigation, or people, our people. Or when you click on about, are they just listing off their C-suite instead of the people who are actually building the product? Or is it like a life at page? Just see how culture and people are prioritized on a website. Because those businesses, I guarantee you, went through the same exercises that you would in a web design project. You're going through information hierarchy and you're determining what is the most important thing that someone should see first on that page. Is it our work? Is it something for investors? Just see after a business has gone through that Application of design on their own brand, on their own site, where do they value people? Where do they value those who are doing the work? Where do they value their culture? So that's step one. And, you know, that might seem like the most simple thing, but I'll tell you what, that is such a tell about how businesses value culture, how they value their people above the bottom line. Of course, you know, keeping the lights on is important, but keeping those who are actually doing the work supported and happy is just as important. And that's step one. In the interview process, Everyone's going to be remote now will slowly be returning to work in various capacities over the coming months. But assume you're going to be interviewing remotely at this point. How engaged are those people who are interviewing you? Are they checking their phone? Are they late? Are they on time? When you ask a question of a given person, assume you're going to be interviewing with more than one person. Ask them the same question. What is something you could have done better on a project and see how different people respond? Or ask about how they would describe the culture and see how different people respond. And you'll get a sense of what is valued most from senior levels down to levels below that of how they view culture, how they view how their team creates. If you're interviewing a person over the coming months, just observe the space. A lot of design, human centered design, is observation. What do you see around you? Apply those skills of observation that you're going to need. Are people Scurrying off to meetings with furrowed brows? Are people sitting on couches or having a pleasant conversation or a cup of coffee? Like, do you see, just observe those moments, capture those moments of human interaction around you. I make a joke about this, but this actually happened to me where I saw cots on the floor in a place I was interviewing at. I'm like, why are there cots here? (laughs) Oh my God. People had to sleep there sometimes to get something out the door. And like I said before, in an abusive relationship, you just get used to unhealthy behaviors being the norm. And those people there thought nothing of it. And I was like, good God, what am I seeing? So just pay attention to the space around you and see what you glean from it. Everyone's worried. Does my breath smell okay? Do I have sweaty palms? Take that observation off yourself for a moment and give yourself a break and just apply it to what's going on around you. And you'll get a sense of a day in the life as it unfolds.
0: Such a great point. You actually have a section in your book about how to do a job interview so that it's more of a mutual dialogue and not an inquisition.
1: Yeah, it's much less about grilling someone and it's a conversation at that point. Like someone has come into the office and applied for this role and that's something to be appreciated that they're potentially trusting you and trusting you with their career and their livelihoods and the evolution of their role. So at that point, it's less me rattling off my questions. It's more a dialogue and I wanna make sure this person is at ease at that point if they might be uncomfortable. And interviewing is a challenging thing. I've been in rooms before of eight to 10 people and I'm sitting at one end of the boardroom and they're sitting at another end. I mean, if you think in like a ridiculous cinematic sense or I've been in one-on-one things in cafes where the person has taken steps to make sure that we're not in an office setting and we are conversing over a cup of coffee and they pick up the tab and all those little nuggets of just it being about two people talking at that point, you can feel it when you have a connection like that, when you have an interview experience like that. Just before we went into shelter-in-place, I had a couple roles open on my team for a researcher and designer, and there was one day when the snow was about to hit. It didn't even hit yet, and I had the recruiter reach out in advance, and if it was okay with this person because I know they had reserved time on their schedule, I asked them to not come in because I didn't know if they were commuting by a bus or if they were driving in from the suburbs or what, but I asked them not to in case there was a colossal snowstorm that hit. And when the person ultimately did come in for the interview, they expressed tremendous appreciation for that. Thank you for, thank you for thinking about me. Thank you for thinking about my well-being. And that person ultimately ended up, it was a mutual fit between them and myself and the team. So they, they ended up taking the role. But you can be human-centered with someone before they even come in the office, is what I'm saying. And those are all kinds of things you can be cognizant of as you're looking for your next role. Those are great
0: examples. And I think the flip side is that there are also potential red flags that our young listeners could watch out for, should watch out for in the job interview itself. What are some of those red flags that you would be listening for, Justin, to give you a sense of, yikes, this is definitely not a place I'd want to
1: hang my hat? Sure, I cited some things before that some are almost comical examples that actually happen, like I said, with a cot thing, or some are a little more nuanced. Like I said, if you're interviewing someone, are they looking at their phone or are they focused on me throughout the interview? So they're more nuanced examples as well. But you know, some people might say if they mention sales in the role, then you're you're more or less in sales at that point, which is something that may or may not be applicable that I've heard before in an interview process. Or are they mentioning are your hours flexible? And you can think about that in terms of, you're going to be here after five o'clock. One time I had an interview and they interviewed me at 5.30, which I thought was really weird. And to them, it was like absolutely nothing. The office was packed at 5.30 or six o'clock. And I thought they were doing that for me because I had to go from another role. But I mean, they were all in the office till eight o'clock every night. So that was a cue I absolutely missed. I whiffed on that one. I was a little more a junior in my career. And I could tell you that now watch for the time of day that people are interviewing you because it might be commonplace for them to be there after hours, which ultimately leads to them not being respectful of a work-life balance. One other tip I would mention is have questions queued up of things that are important to you. Is working remotely important to you? Is a flexible schedule important to you? And see what kind of answers you get as a red flag. Are you getting flop sweat in response? Are you getting immediate responses that speak to well-thought-out plans? So just have things lined up that are important to you beyond where do you see yourself in five to seven years as a business. That's important, but think about what's important to you and what those responses ultimately yield. One of my
0: many concerns about the millions of people being unemployed and young people graduating and looking for jobs in this kind of economic environment is that they may feel even more anxious about not wanting to come across as demanding or someone who's going to be perceived as high maintenance. How can they extract the information they need without it backfiring on them?
1: I think it's, it's just good to be honest and put your cards on the table. If you do have circumstances that require being high maintenance, maybe you need to, you know, four o'clock is your stopping point on a given day because that's when aftercare stops at school and you have to pick up your son or your daughter then. And these are just things common to people's lives and their existence. And that's not high maintenance at all. I mean, there are a lot of things that are just common requests. Or if you're pregnant, if you have a mother's that's not a high maintenance. That's just a part of life. And has a business put a thought to those things? I think just laying your cards out on the table and things that relate to life and should not be considered high maintenance are just inherent in, in our existence as human beings. The reception that those things are met with are incredibly telling to what kind of business it is and what you're you know ultimately in for if you signed up with them.
0: Justin, I have a few more questions left, and one of them involves flashing back. To when you were in college. You went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where you got a BFA in visual communications. Did you know
1: what you were gonna do with that degree when you graduated? No, I did not. Uh, During that time, and this is 1998, 1999, a career as a web designer. I'll say that in quotes, was brand new and evolving. You'd tell your mom, your web designer, they would have no idea what you were talking about. There was no UX or any sort of formal curriculum around design for the web broadly at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago at that time. So- while in art school and studying the Masters of Graphic Design, learning typography, etc., I taught myself how to code HTML just from reading some books, and I ended up doing some independent study to figure out how to apply design to what I'll call the digital landscape. And the infusion of design against a raw and unshaped internet problem-solving in a brand-new, undiscovered way fueled the passion inside of me that has really never dwindled. So I had no sense going in and doing a letter setting on the old Type press systems, studying the master graphic designers, and I am absolutely appreciative of that formal design training. It's helped me grow and evolve, and I'm still how I design today. But Coming out of that, if you told me I was going to be involved in the internet, I never would have said that in a million years, but that's how it evolved and boy, has it been the right fit.
0: (laughs) So how did you find your first job and what was it? Yeah, literally the day
1: I graduated the Art Institute, and I remember Yoko Ono was the uh, commencement speaker. Literally the day I graduated, I drove to the East Coast with my girlfriend at the time and drove to Portland, Maine. So 17 hours that day. And I lived in Portland, Maine for about a year and a half. And I just took time to try and find something in the internet. And Portland, Maine is not the biggest market in the world, particularly then, uh, to find a design job. So it was a lot of interviewing with just something to bring money in at that point. I tried with design, focus things first. And the majority of what I found was production level things. So like doing like production catalog placement at like a a meat processing plant or a manufacturer, heavy manufacturing. And there were a lot of those things, but I couldn't even get those gigs. (laughs) I was struggling, I was striking out on those. And then finally, I found a role in the technology nook within Portland, Maine, which is a really cool area. And there was an internet magazine there called Interface Monthly Magazine. And I interviewed there and I got a job as their first ever web designer. But even then, there wasn't enough work to go around because people were still understanding what web design meant to support being a web designer. So I was doing magazine spread layout stuff and I was doing, people would call in with an ad they wanted to place and I would have to lay it out and put it in the ad section in the back. So it was like 40% or 50% that and 50% building their website, I coded it, and I designed it from the ground up. And I put a very rudimentary system in place to handle uh, signing up for a magazine subscription. Of course, that boosted their sales massively, which then gave me more credence as uh, web design being fulfillment of that role. So it was a really cowboy time of figuring things out in the internet and what were the limitations and possibilities, let alone in a, a smaller market, let alone being 21, 22 years old. So it was a really cool time. I made (laughs) $18,000, I remember. That was my annual salary, so not much money at that point, but uh, I was doing what I loved, and I made it work. Yeah, you were scrappy. Scrappy, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Justin, I try to ask all of my guests if they could share a time in their professional life when they really struggled. That may have been it. You've also alluded to some challenging work environments that you had. Most importantly, though, how did you persevere? How did you get through that really tough time? And was there
1: a lesson that you may have
0: learned in the process?
1: Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. I think taking the negatives and learning from them and growing from them. And by the negatives, I'm largely referring to the cultural aspects. The examples I said earlier, how leaders had let me down before, design leaders specifically in various positions. I started to learn the more I put myself out there, the more the leadership positions and evolution in my career kind of organically happened. For example, I was in a role called a creative associate, which is a fairly junior level position at one of the top five web hosting companies in the world. I think this was the early 90s, early mid 90s. And I saw the software that we had that was customer facing when someone would configure their website or build out a very rudimentary website that we offered as a service. It was just ugly. It wasn't intuitive. It wasn't usable. I had read some Books about usability. So I emailed the CEO, and again, you know, I'm early 20s at this point, and I said, I think there's an opportunity to do something here as a differentiator. And the same day he walked over to my desk and said, Let's go to lunch. And I remember my boss sitting behind me, and he's like, You're going to lunch with him? And I said, I guess I am. And he took me to lunch, and I talked about how we can be more intuitive and usable in the presentment of our customer facing tools and how it could be a differentiator in sales and organically generate marketing. And he was all for it. And we came back and that afternoon I moved my desk and I had a new role and I had a new boss literally that afternoon. And I built a team in my mid-20s and I was able to understand in a baptism by fire sense about hiring and about being supportive of other people's growth as well as my own and figuring things out. So that was definitely, you mentioned beating over in your head and figuring things out. I was definitely way over my head at that point. I would say that's a life lesson as well. If you're going to put yourself out there, be careful what might happen as a result of it. I wasn't ready for it, but it did kind of organically influence some rapid growth as well. Being as humble as possible about what the result might be of that as well, going into it with eyes wide open is also key.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that, Justin. And I can hear that one of your little ones is very unhappy. I only have one question left (laughs) for Daddy, okay? (laughs) Sure. If you could go back to the Art Institute of Chicago and do it all over again. But based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I would take it more seriously, frankly. It was kind of a cultural revolution for me coming from a Catholic boys' school, going to the Art Institute in downtown Chicago. And I was so immersed with evolving as a person at that point, learning about myself and discovering the city and everything it had to offer that a lot of times I didn't take the curriculum as seriously as I could have. And they just have so much to offer there world-renowned educators and brilliance, brilliance galore. So if I had it all over again, I would focus on my studies <laughs> much more than I did because it's it's not a cheap place to go. And the the education there has a reputation it does for a reason. So uh, I would take my studies much more seriously if I could. And I, I had to do some catching up after I left kind of on the job. But if you're at a UX boot camp, if you're at an art school, what have you, if you're making a career shift, just being hyper aware that you get out of it what you put into it. Long story short, and I could have done a better job there. And that's my core takeaway. Well, I went to
0: an all-girl Catholic school, so I totally get it. (laughs) By the way, Justin's book features an adorable, gender-neutral hummingbird on the cover and throughout the book. And I don't know, or would love to know if this was your intent, in Native American culture, hummingbirds are seen as healers and, and those that bring love, good luck, and joy. Did you
1: know that, Justin? I did via my illustrator. In fact, I'm so glad you brought that up. My illustrator who did the illustrations for that book, his name is Bobby Price. That was a character he was kind of playing with for a while just in his sketchbooks and things like that. And he told me the same thing. And I thought that was a beautiful nuance to add to the book. And the book the Hummingbird character is supposed to be indicative of the reader. So every chapter illustration has the Hummingbird character and, and more or less tips its hat to what the contents of the respective chapter is and it represents the reader itself. So yeah, really glad you brought that up. And I thought that was a beautiful point when my illustrator brought it up in kind. Justin's latest book is entitled Creative Culture, Human-Centered
0: Interaction, Design and Inspiration. It's due out in June of 2020. And if you want to learn more about how to break into whether it's UX or UI design, check out the show notes to see if Justin's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped. I want to end with a quote from Justin's book. Instead of looking back On years of compromised work and industry burnout, seek out the companies who are doing it right. They're out there. The passion for doing your best work is too precious to be extinguished by an unhealthy culture. Justin, thank you so much for making time for coffee today. Thank you so much for writing this book. It is Such a terrific book. I hope everyone reads it, especially those who are farther along in their career. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Andrea.
1: I really appreciate the dialogue.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live.